Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast. This is episode 69. We are recording this on April 5th. 2020 at 3:10 p.m. Pacific time. I am your host Terry Plucknett. With me are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, Todd, what is weirder, not being able to go anywhere or no sports being on TV? Uh, I would say not being able to go anywhere is is weirder. I mean, I am still working just as much as I was before, but like not being able to go to the theater, I feel like I'm getting withdrawals. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Zach? What are you thinking? Uh, I think uh, it's the new normal. But, you know, I shudder to think what life would be like without Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu. I mean, imagine imagine if this had happened 10 years ago. What did pe- How did people ever survive the Spanish flu of 1918? That's really what I wonder. You actually had to Without talk. digital tools. Exactly. You had to <laughs> talk to people you were quarantined with. Read? What? Ugh. Shudder. <laughs> I, I would say the weirdest thing is, um, is not having sports. Because, like, we've all had, like, been sick where we don't leave the house for a week or something like that. But you could always turn on the game that's on that night. I, I mean, the we've been stuck in our houses before. I don't think it's it's just weird to not have anything sports wise to watch on TV, uh, which leads to my next thing. Uh, actually, let's go. Let's do this first. Zach, what are you drinking? I'm having uh, for the third straight episode out of uh, Lawrence, Kansas, fabulous Copperhead Pale Ale from Free State Brewery. You can tell I haven't really been out of the house much lately. Not going to risk it for, for beer, for this beer at least. Yeah, Maybe Costco wine might be different. but I have respect for beer. I have respect for beer. <laughs> All right, Todd, what are you drinking? I am drinking the Cazadores uh, Reposado Tequila, and it's got a mousse on it. It's really good. It's really, <laughs> it's really thick. Hold on. Hold up that bottle again. That is not a moose. Well, maybe it's a deer? I don't know. Something. It's not <laughs> That's a moose. an elk. That is not a moose. Well, it could be. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a scientist. After five drinks of it, it becomes a moose. Uh, yes, I, I'll go with that. Uh, so, uh, we haven't really been out of the house either. However, we've been doing a lot of, uh, of grocery ordering. And we've got a Whole Foods nearby, so uh, Amazon Grocery delivers to us. And so... Um, we found we found a beer that was like okay this is one we gotta order because it'd be great to talk about on the podcast because it's what I wish everything were right now this is a uh, Breakside Brewery uh, in Portland I've actually been to this brewery before um, this is their Rainbows and Unicorns IPA which is what we wish everything were right now if everything were just rainbows and unicorns life would be much better well said yeah so rainbows cheers. and unicorns but no moose. Or elk. Mm-hmm. And mine is definitely a unicorn. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, 
before we get into everything, we're going to be doing our, our deep dive uh, in this episode of uh, Requiem for a Dream. Uh, but before we get into that, we're going to talk about a few things of what we've been watching and uh, what movies we've watched. But before we get to that, uh, like I said, no sports has really been a weird thing uh, to be going on at this time. Um, but it also has allowed us to be watching other things that we normally wouldn't be watching or discovering other things that we normally wouldn't have. So, Zach, what has been a surprising discovery for you uh, that wouldn't have happened if you could watch sports? Uh, boy, that's a tough question. Um, because I would say a lot of what I've been watching is crappy uh, repeats of TV shows I've watched a million times. So I could be a smartass and say, like, you know, season two of Jersey Shore. That was a you know, pretty remarkable discovery that I don't think I would have found without the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I will say, though, I've, I've discovered you on Netflix. I think that's a pretty good show. I'm midway through season two right now. Um, it's with Penn Badgley, who uh, is really good in the show. I kind of described it to Todd as a mixture of American Psycho meets, um, what was it? Uh, uh, crap, there was, oh, um, Gone Girl. Because he's basically psychopathic, um, and you kind of get his state of mind. And uh, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's pretty good. It's very trashy, you know, like Gone Girl. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's pretty compulsively enjoyable. Nice. Nice. Todd, how about you? What have you uh, discovered that you wouldn't have discovered if it wasn't for uh, no sports? Uh, I, I honestly haven't watched that much new, but I mean, kind of sad to report that I watched some eSports, and it, it actually is uh, kind of entertaining. And, like I, earlier today, <laughs> I was watching like this 16-person uh, Madden tournament, and I actually was kind of riveted by watching these like random people uh, play each other in, with like these like completely drafted teams with uh, legends and all that uh, playing in a, a big tournament for one hundred ninety thousand dollars. I mean, I, I thought it was actually fun, and I always like frowned upon the the thought of esports. That is so fascinating. You say that, Todd, because I watched that today too. I thought the the kid that won the whole thing was really obnoxious, though. I was oh, disappointed he was. that that he won. Oh, he was terrible. And it was like just because Chris John no apparently no one could stop Chris Johnson and, and Ronnie Lott is like a cheat code yeah and Ronnie Lott yeah exactly <laughs> oh he was an asshole and I love my favorite thing the announcer said is he's seventeen years old and he's already gotten into Maryland College yeah what does that mean <laughs> yeah I was wondering that too That's... I was like is that a thing <laughs> community college uh, that wouldn't make sense That's funny. The, the little bit I've I've experienced of that is like the, uh, um, the the like athletes playing each other in in the esports. So like they had like the the NBA two K tournament and they had some baseball players playing each other in MLB the show. That was kind of cool. Um, so uh, for me, uh, what I've discovered so. Sports is great because, so I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old at home, so I can't just throw on random Netflix shows and watch them all day because, you know, yeah, I, yeah no, I can't do that. So uh, sports is always great because it's a great background noise that you can get and um, not have to worry about, you know, content. So I've had to find what's my new background noise since there's no sports on. And so I've been watching a lot of uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. 
And I discovered a new one that's very similar that's on the cooking channel. It's called, it's instead of Triple D, it's Triple B. It's Burgers, Brew, and Q. Uh, so Burgers, Brew, and Barbecue. Uh, and it's, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. They go around and find the best burgers. And then they say, and if you go there, pair it with this beer. It's really good. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things I've, I've discovered. Um, I've also noticed I've started playing some video games again. I've, I normally don't have time for that, but I need my fix somewhere. And I really only play sports video games. So that's really where I'm getting my fix. So, yeah. Yeah. My some PlayStation 2 does sure. not work anymore. I realized that earlier today too. Oh, so now I'm stuck no. video games. You just gotta go buy a new system. <laughs> you wouldn't even know what to do with, like, a PS4. <laughs> this is true. Uh, yeah, I don't really right. play well, video games, been... but oh, I've, been, I've been craving some Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, you know? Because... Maybe Terry, you remember, but you know, back in college, that was very therapeutic. After a long day, you just you know go home, pick up some prostitutes, steal some cars, and jump off the mountain, and shoot some people in the process, and go play blackjack. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that was in Vice City, right? That was the no, mini game. No, San Andreas. Oh, is it? Okay. It's in San Andreas. Yeah, because Vegas is in San Andreas. Las Venturas. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's the things that we've uh, we've been discovering. But now let's talk about what we've been watching, uh, some movies we've caught this week. Uh, Zach, I'll go to you first. What uh, what movies are uh, have you caught, and what do you want to talk about? Okay. Well, I've honestly, I mean, I love Requiem for Dream, but I, I gotta say, I may be actually looking more forward to talking about this movie that I watched randomly. It's a movie that we has been brought up a lot in the media recently, and apparently Terry has seen this movie, even though Todd has not, and that is Outbreak from 1995. The, now shall we say, prescient film about a global pandemic of a, uh, of a coronavirus-like flu that spreads um, and uh, infects basically the whole country. Uh, it stars Dustin Hoffman. It has an all-star cast. I mean, this is like really a, a quite an incredible cast. Dustin Hoffman, Rene Russo, Morgan Freeman, Donald Sutherland, Cuba Gooding Jr. Like everyone's an Oscar winner in this movie. Kevin Spacey. Spacey. Yeah. Who could forget? And, uh, uh, I almost want to write a book about this movie. I mean, someone, someone I'm sure will now write a book because it's, it's a very prescient movie. Um, but I, I found this movie to be, like, laughably bad. I mean, it was, it was a classic, like, enjoyable, bad-to-watch movie. And the thing I want to write a book about is not so much Outbreak as a movie, but about the transition between Outbreak and Contagion 16 years later, the Steven Soderbergh movie, because they're almost like the same movie in terms of plot. They could not be any more different in terms of style and approach, you know, Outbreak is this very heavy-handed, almost like 1950s like disaster movie. You have the Donald Sutherland character who's basically like Buck Turgidson out of Doctor Strangelove. You know, he's advocating putting a carpet bomb in this community that has uh, that has people who have been infected by the virus. You have Dustin Hoffman and Rene Russo. They, their marriage has has had been torn apart, but maybe they'll they'll come back together because the virus. You know, and she gets sick and. Uh, 
you know, Dustin Hoffman's racing against the clock. Oh, we gotta get the cure. They find themselves in this helicopter chase at the end of the movie. I mean, it is like so laughably escapist 90s ridiculous. Versus 16 years later with Contagion, which is this very sort of uh, removed, almost like um, totally desensitized movie that looks very uh, like almost uh, clinically at these characters that just die. And we don't feel anything for them. We don't feel any kind of remorse or, or emotion toward them and the style is so different too because it's like you know typical steven soderbergh kind of handheld sort of stuff it looks like it's a t it looks like it's a tv uh, miniseries or something but in a very like gritty realistic way and that transition between outbreak and contagion is that it is the transition between the older era of filmmaking and today's era of filmmaking. And I think it, it, it's just so fascinating to watch. I don't know where that shift occurred. I don't know where Outbreak suddenly became outdated and like totally passe to make movies like that. I think somewhere along the lines, maybe it was like the opening 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan when everyone saw that and was like, this is changing the way movies are made. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about it with Requiem for a Dream too. But anyway, this is just a long extended rant basically saying that Outbreak is like the most hilariously relevant yet outdated movie I, and, and it's such a paradox because it's those two things it's those two contradictions all wrapped up, up into one but uh, it, it was quite an experience watching that movie yeah it's almost like hearing you talk about it and remember it's been a long time since I watched it I watched this for the first time when I was in high school in my biology class. And I remember my biology teacher, like having a coughing fit every time the swear words would come up because he probably wasn't supposed to be showing it. But, um, the, uh, it's almost like outbreak is like the Armageddon of pandemic films. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's just where it's just, everything is over the top and, and, uh, yeah, just completely out of control. I think it's a fun movie though. It's a, it's an awesomely bad movie, not necessarily realistic, but yeah. Well, I mean, that's the funny thing is actually I don't think it's terribly unrealistic in terms of like the pandemic that happens in the movie because you know there are, there are things that they talk about like being asymptomatic, for example, or um, practicing social distancing, things like that, or, or quarantines. Like that obviously is is very relevant. There's some degree of realism to what actually happens in the movie. In fact, it's probably more closer to coronavirus than what happens in Contagion. It's just the approach cinematically is so heavy-handed and. So so out of date. It really makes me feel old. It makes me feel like, you know, it's a movie that uh, someone younger than me would just not, they wouldn't take seriously at all. And I remember when that movie came out, people took it very seriously. Like it was like a legit movie. It wasn't meant to be heavy handed or schlocky in any way, but that is what it is today. And it's like, I don't know, somewhere along the lines the the movies changed. And so that's why I want to write my book about it. And I already have a title from outbreak to contagion, you know, how movies have changed. That'd be a fun book. You should write it, like, exactly. in, in the next month. Yes. Nothing, but else, nothing to else to do. Perfect. <laughs> Contagion, by the way, is a very good movie. I actually have not seen Contagion, but I've seen Outbreak. Contagion is a very, very good movie. I, I want to rewatch it. I remember when I first saw it, I gave it three and a half stars. I've been meaning to rewatch it. Uh, I'm just a little, a little afraid to right now. A little, maybe a little too close. The the one uh, I would say the one thing about outbreak that is just completely ridiculous is that the disease in outbreak feels like it's kind of like the disease in Mission Impossible Two, 
where it's like, if you get it, you know, you can start a clock and within like 12 hours, your cells are going to explode and you're going to just, you know, melt away and die. And, uh, and there's zero, zero percent chance of recovery and, uh, and all that. It, it's just kind of ridiculous. But anyways, Mission Impossible 2. There's another good shout out for you. All right. Todd, what have you been watching? Another great 2000 movie. Another great 2000 movie. <laughs> that came up yep. last podcast? Yeah, a few podcasts no, ago. Two podca- few, Gone few, 60 few seconds. dives ago, yeah. That was it, yep. All right, Todd. All right. Uh, the movie I watched uh, came out just a few days ago. It was the new HBO documentary called The Scheme, directed by Pat Condolis, and it's about Christian Dawkins, who uh, was pretty became uh, pretty notable about five years ago when uh, a whole bunch of things blew up about him. He was a uh, started out he was just like a young kid who had a who had an eye for talent in basketball, and but then he became an intern for an agency, and uh, by the age of nineteen, he had already signed uh, two players who got drafted in the first round of the NBA draft. So he was like a hot new name in uh, in the industry. And then by the age of twenty one, he was starting his own business. He got in with like an Adidas executive. And um, a couple really rich guys, uh, a financial advisor, uh, who were all willing to back his new company. And they, they really just kind of got in his way and were suggesting outrageous things. What he didn't know is that he, uh, um, uh, that two of them were actually FBI informants and the uh, FBI agents, and, and one of them was a criminal informant. So he got in uh, really bad because they had been tapping his phone for like three to six months. And uh, uh, it, it, it really... Um, they, they were trying to force him to, like, give up names. Like, uh, they really wanted to take down Rick Pitino. Uh, I, HBO had did a really interesting thing with it because somehow they got access to, like, all the wiretaps, all the video recorded conversations, all the documents. It's, like, a more polished 30 for 30. And uh, it's it's sort of a frustrating movie, It's it, it, and a lot of shady things happen, but I, I, it is really entertaining. I have no idea how Sean Miller and Will Wade still have jobs. Like, their assistant coaches are in prison. Uh, but it puts like amateurism and all that uh, in perspective, and uh, I, I think it's riveting to watch. It's a three and a half star movie. Nice, nice. I wonder, did uh, did Bill Simmons have anything to do with that one? No, I don't. I don't think so. It, it was it was all HBO, so I, I mean, he wouldn't have produced that or anything. Well, I, I know he I know he did the he helped produce like the Andre the Giant HBO documentary that came out a, a year or two ago. So I wasn't sure. Oh, well, I mean, if he did, I, it wasn't, I, I didn't notice his name in anything. Okay, okay. No, I, I did not catch that one. I hadn't uh, hadn't heard of it yet, so I'll have, to, I'll have to try and check that one out. Yeah, I haven't heard of it either. It sounds really interesting, though. So, uh, for me, I watched uh, I watched two movies this week, um, and I didn't notice the, uh, the theme until I was getting ready for the podcast and how much I really miss sports, and especially baseball, because it's... It should be baseball season right now. So I actually watched two baseball movies. Uh, the first, uh, I watched off a TCM early in the week. It is the 1949 MGM musical Take Me Out to the Ball Game, uh, starring Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, and Esther Williams. Uh, Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly uh, star as Dennis Ryan and Eddie O'Brien, the uh, double play combination for a turn-of-the-century Major League Baseball team. That uh, after winning the championship, they take their new fame and notoriety uh, as a vaudeville act in the offseason that tours the country. 
and they come back uh, feeling pretty good about themselves and uh, and thinking they're a little uh, a little more important than they actually are. Uh, Gene Kelly's character is thinking of you know a, a career in showbiz instead of baseball, while Sinatra's character just loves the game. They find out that their uh, their team has been bought by this new owner that wants to wants to be involved in the day to day operations, and that uh, owner is Esther Williams, uh, kind of known in, in the MGM musical circles as like the the water queen. Like she was the one she would be the one that would always do like different dance routines in the water and things like that. Uh, they actually built a pool on the MGM lot just for her, so they could have like underwater cameras and stuff. Um, anyways, it's it's really corny, and and silly as most MGM musicals are. Um, it's always fun to watch Gene Kelly. Um, it's really strange the the chemistry between Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra, because they are two like polar opposite guys, um, but they they play off each other really really well. But it, it the the baseball in, in it is just ridiculous. It shows it knows very, very little about the game or really cares to know anything about the game or act like, you know, the people actually can play the game. Um, and then and then it turns into like a love triangle of of which one of them is going to be able to uh, get the owner to fall in love with them first. Um, it's a two star movie. Um but it, it was it was fun. Like I said, it's always it's always entertaining to watch Gene Kelly do his thing because Gene Kelly just he was the man. Um, so that was that. And then uh, just this morning, I for the first time I watched Eight Men Out. Um, I don't know how I had never seen this before, but I hadn't. Um, classic John Sayles movie, 1988, about the Black Sox scandal. And this is everything. Take me out to the ball game wasn't. Um, it is not corny at all. It is, uh, it is a fascinating story, and it tells it in a very engaging way. It really knows its, knows its stuff when it comes to the game, and the, the baseball scenes are some of the best baseball scenes you'll find in a movie. Um, an amazing cast of characters, John Cusack, David Strathairn, um, uh, Charlie Sheen, you got Michael Rooker in there. Uh, all sorts of all sorts of guys. It's it's a great John Mahoney is the manager. Uh, it's a great movie, and uh, and uh, I uh, I really 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 enjoyed it. Uh, three and a half stars. Um, yeah, uh, loved Eight Men Out. Yeah, I actually think Eight Men Out is the best baseball movie ever. Uh, I, I think the non-baseball stuff works just as well as the baseball stuff, and I, I think it's really smart. And John Sales is probably the best director that's ever worked on a baseball movie, so I, 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 I love that movie. Yeah, I love it too. I think it's the second best baseball movie ever made. The best is obviously Sugar, but Eight Men Out is very good. I feel like it doesn't it, – it didn't have – maybe it was ahead of its time – in the regard that it was a, it was kind of cynical toward the institution of baseball, and maybe that's what some purists didn't like about it, um, because I don't think it quite has the popularity of movies like Field of Dreams or Bull Durham, which came out at around the same time. Um, it's a movie that's more about the, the the institutional shortcomings of the you know baseball organization, um, not so much about the the game, the pleasure of the game. But uh, I think it's a really good movie, really underrated. Well, and I found it interesting how they were trying to not necessarily justify, but like 
put yourself in their shoes, would you have done the same thing? And, uh, and really make it feel like, you know, this wasn't just they were out for a quick buck, that they had kind of been abused by ownership and uh, they'd, they'd had enough and they weren't going to, didn't want to play for the guy anymore, really. So, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, well, I think the reason why it wasn't as popular at the time is because then, like, they really love to romanticize the America's pastime thing and, like, Eight Men Out does not do that at all, which I, I mean, which is why we probably love the movie and why it wasn't like super popular as opposed to field of dreams and stuff which is as feel good of a old school baseball movie as there is yeah where where field of dreams is is nostalgic and romantic and you could throw the natural in there too um eight men out i mean even both have shoeless joe jackson in it but um it's a very very different look at the at the situation for sure all right. Well, those are the movies uh, we've been watching, and let's move on and get into our deep dive. Um, this is, I'm saying this is movie number three of the Almost Sideways Online Film Festival. Uh, hopefully you guys have been able to, uh, to watch and, uh, and follow along as we've, uh, as we've done this. I think, it, I think it'll be a lot of fun to, uh, to uh, follow along in that way as we go through. Um, this is, uh, 20th anniversary of Requiem for a Dream. I told you, Mom, one day I'd make it. You don't have to make anything, my sweet. You just have to love your mom. I think all of us can agree that this is a really an amazing film uh, from the time. So we're going to start start out with our uh, with our trivia. I'm hosting, and so it's Todd versus Zach here. Uh, let's see here. We're going to go with uh, we're going to go Zach first. So Todd, unplug and go home. And uh, okay. And then <laughs> and then we will uh, we'll signal you back in a little bit all right zach you ready for this i feel like i've been first on a lot of the recent trivia but uh let's do it have you i think so See, i couldn't remember so i just went with you hey i don't care okay all right so we have we have nine questions for a total of 18 points can I also just say that I think it must have been really hard to come up with trivia for this movie. Like I was watching, now we always watch these movies with the idea that we're going to do trivia. I really couldn't find anything in this movie that, anything like like uh, uh, nuanced or like detailed that you can ask about. So I'm very curious yeah, to see your question. This, this was, I, I kind of felt the same thing as I was watching it. So, but I think I came up with some good, um, is some good trivia questions here. Some of them might be a little too obscure, but we'll we'll see how it goes. All right, number one, uh, what is the price of the Tappy Tibbins collection on the DVD menu? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, nineteen ninety nine. It was thirty nine ninety nine. Thirty nine ninety nine. Yeah, nineteen ninety nine is a little too cheap. All right. Um, what is the job and hometown of Mary, the first Tappy Tibbins winner? Oh, uh, and I was even thinking about that one too. Uh, uh, 
gosh, I was, I, I do remember her. Um, I don't know. Uh, Buffalo, New York, and she's a banker. She's a flight attendant from D.C. Great. Uh, number three, why is there a chain on the TV? Uh, so that Harry can't steal it again? No, it's for the robbers. Oh, okay. It's not for you, it's for the robbers. But is that the real reason? I mean, she might just be saying that. That's, but that, that's, that's all we can assume is it's for is it's it's for the robbers you should but you should you should amend that question to say what does what does okay sarah what say does for? what does sarah say the chain on the tv is for okay i will i will change that um okay what does juice stand for join us in creating excellence that one i knew that you is correct ask. okay uh what are tappy's three things uh the three rules no red meat no refined sugar, and then according to online, it's no orgasm, but we never see that in the movie. It's actually on the whiteboard. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I stand corrected. It, 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 it is on the whiteboard, so those are the three, and that's three points there. Um, what is Mr. Goldfarb's first name? Seymour. Seymour? Um, when Sarah is on the train, what street is she trying to get to? Uh It's like an iconic street, I want to say. Um, Madison Avenue? Madison Avenue is correct. All right. Uh, at the end, what three things were part of Sarah's grand prize? Three things were part of Sarah's grand prize. Like she sees herself on, on Tappy Tibbins. And Are you talking about the last scene in the movie? Won- Yes, she's won the grand prize. What three things were uh, were part of her grand prize? Um, her son being in the audience. No, <laughs> I don't even. I don't Eric, remember her, her winning a grand prize. It, it, it's, so attention. it's the last scene. It's the last scene. She's on Tappy Tibbins, and he says, "You've won the grand prize." Harry has his own private business. He just got engaged, and he's getting married this summer. Those are the three things. Ah, okay. I wouldn't have gotten And then that. Harry comes out. Okay. okay. And the last question. This question is worth six points. Other than Requiem for a Dream, name the other six movies directed by Darren Aronofsky. Okay. Pi. Correct. Noah. Correct. Uh, uh, the, the Wrestler. Correct. Black Swan. Correct. Mother. Two more. Correct. And then the weird one. Okay, it's the Hugh Jackman one with Rachel Weisz. I'm struggling to remember it. It has a weird title. It's a the something. The. The. I know Todd's gonna know it too. God damn it! And I saw it in theaters, and it's a weird freaking movie. The. The. It's, it's like, a horrible movie too. I didn't think it was that bad, but it was, it was not great. I would agree with you. The, the, you're going to say it and I'm going to slap myself for not knowing it. What is it? Just say it. The fountain. The fountain. All right. Well, they're, Todd, go, they're looking for the fountain of youth. Yeah. Todd's going to beat me. All right. That's okay. You got 11 points. All right. That's more than I thought. Okay. All right. Todd is back. All right, Todd. Do you want to know how Zach did or not? Uh, I don't care. 
All right. Well, we have we have nine questions for eighteen points. Zach got eleven. Okay. Um, and we did make the comment before we started that this is kind of a hard movie to come up with trivia for. Yeah. So. I could see that. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Question number one: What is the price of the Tappy Tibbins collection on the DVD menu? Thirty-nine ninety-five. Oh, it's thirty-nine ninety-nine. Four uh, cents. I'm get. I'm gonna. I'll give it to you though. I'll give it to you. What did he? What? what how far was Zach off? Or what's? He said nineteen ninety-nine. Even yeah, I say you're get, definitely get the point for that. I thought it was thirty. Four yeah. cents is yeah. nothing. Oh, I, I really thought it was thirty-five ninety-nine or ninety-five. Oh, okay. I think I. You might be right, actually. I don't know. It's thirty nine ninety something. Conspiracy theory. Yeah. All right. Number two. Uh, what is the job in hometown of Mary, the first Tappy Tibbins winner? Uh, she's from. Uh, uh was she from like Manhattan Beach? Uh, and she was like a hairdresser or something. She was a flight attendant from D.C. Ah, D.C. I think Marion's so no. from Manhattan Beach. Never mind. Yeah. Okay. Um, according to Sarah, why is there a chain on the TV? Uh, for, uh, to stop the robbers. To stop the robbers. You're, that is correct. I, I had to adjust that question. Zach said to stop Harry from stealing it. And I said, no, she says it's for the robbers. So I had to say, according to Sarah. Yeah. Okay. Would you have gotten it if I said according to Sarah, Zach? Uh, yes. Because right, I remember we'll that we'll line. We'll see how... That's okay. We'll see how this goes. It's all right. All right. Okay. Um, what does juice stand for? I I don't know. What, it, it, each each word stands for, or each letter stands for something? Yes. Oh, jeez. I, I have no idea. Duh. Join us in creating excellence. There you go. Uh, number five, what are Tappy's three things? His three rules. Uh, no, no refined sugar. Uh, I don't know. Uh, no, no red meat, no refined sugar. And the third one, which is never said, but it can be seen on his whiteboard is no orgasms. I didn't realize the, the trivia was about Tappy Tibbins. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the one thing that there you can get stuff out of. Next question. Um, what is Mr. Goldfarb's first name? Like? Like the dad. I, I don't know. Bill? It's Seymour. I don't remember that. Dude, I think you got this in the bag, Zach. Uh, number seven, when Sarah is on the train, what street is she trying to get to? Madison Avenue. That is correct. Uh, number eight, uh, in the final scene, Sarah sees herself on Tappy Tibbins, and Tappy Tibbins says that she's won the grand prize. What three things are a part of her grand prize? Stupid show. Um, Harry? This was, this was a strange question. Um, uh, money, Harry, money and a television. I don't know. 
Harry has his own private business. He just got engaged and he's getting married this summer. I thought it wasn't that strange of a question. Like he says, you've won the grand prize. Harry has his own bit private business. He just got engaged and he's getting married this summer. And here he is. Ah. Anyways, uh, last question. Uh, this last question is worth six points. Other than Requiem for a Dream, name the other six movies directed by Darren Aronofsky. Pie. Noah. The Fountain. Black Swan. The Wrestler. Mother. Those are all correct. And with a score of 11 to 10, Zach wins. Amazing. So, I don't know how you didn't ask uh, what... What a NBA player appears on the the newspaper, what, uh, in their the house. Latrell Sprewell. No, it was Alan Houston. Oh well, I I thought I saw Latrell Sprewell's name on it. Well, there was a picture of Alan <laughs> Houston. It was number twenty. I don't even know if I remember that. It's when he makes the it. paper airplane. Oh yeah, I didn't even pay attention to that. Anyways, okay, so, uh, Zach, you won trivia, so you get to be the first one to talk about Requiem for a Dream. Tell us uh, kind of what it's about and what your experience is with it. All right, well, Requiem for a Dream is the second film of Darren Aronofsky, um, who was, you know, in his early 30s when he made this movie. Um, And it stars Ellen Burstyn, Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly, and Marlon Wayans as four people in uh, Brooklyn who uh, are in their own various ways, um, addicted to drugs. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it, it was in, in the early 2000s, you know, it was a movie that was sort of, I would almost say like the, 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 the perfect iconic example of like an indie film that tried to shock people. Um, it was put out by Artisan Entertainment, and the movie got slapped with an NC-17 rating, and then Artisan still released it unrelated. And I think as a result, at least this was my sort of impression of the movie, it had almost an underground following because it didn't get a big theatrical release. But it did get a, a lot of widespread acclaim, and eventually Ellen Burstyn got an Oscar nomination. And I don't know, maybe it's comparable to like American History X in the way that it got the Oscar nomination, which kind of put the movie on the map uh, for being really edgy and a movie that um, probably most mainstream audiences uh, would not be able to watch in a theater and, um, you know, like handle well. I don't know. I've seen the movie enough times that I've probably become immune to a lot of the worst scenes in the movie. Um, I tend to think that the worst, like, most objectionable thing in this movie is looking at Jared Leto's arm at the end. Like, that's the most horrific thing, quite honestly. Other than that, I really don't know why this movie wouldn't have gotten an R rating. Um, But it is a really powerful movie. And I think with Aronofsky's sort of ascension into uh, becoming a more mainstream director um, and a director of Oscar-winning and Oscar-nominated performances in The Wrestler and Black Swan, um, it's a movie that I think has grown uh, it with time. And everyone, and I mean everyone, knows the music from it. Yeah, that score is definitely iconic. Uh, Todd, how about you? Yeah, I, I've always loved the movie. I saw it first time when I was probably like seventeen or eighteen or something. I don't. But I mean, it, I've I've always I've always been drawn to it, and I've probably seen it five or six times now. And I I've never been overly disturbed by it. I mean, I, I've always been able to watch it re- regardless. I could even just like turn on random scenes and I'd be okay with it. And I I I think I think it's fascinating and it's claustrophobic and it's an experience movie and I I think it's an important movie to watch uh, in in a lot of ways and. I, I 
yeah, I, I, it's a top 100 movie for me. Yeah, I, I've uh, I've always loved this movie from the first time I watched it too, and and like you guys said, it's it's an important movie, um, and I've never necessarily been disturbed by like the the images in it. Like, like Zach said, the his arm at the end is kind of ridiculous, um, but it, it is it is one of the more depressing movies, uh, movie experiences I've ever had. Like I remember first time I watched this, it was a movie I couldn't shake for days just because of of the story and how it um these characters are all just completely crushed by by life by the system by everything that's going on around them um and uh it it, it's it's just a movie that just sticks with you in that way and so uh so yeah that's that's really what what stood out the most to me um even watching it this time too is it it's such a it's such an anti-american dream movie in a lot of ways um because of how it uh how it portrays just just life in general and how how it can be that like the title says it's that requiem for a dream for sure okay terry can we address the elephant in the room before we get any further on this podcast sure all right we got to bring this up. How is this movie the number 17 on your all-time list? Like, Todd and I had a very long text thread about this. Is it really your number 17? Are you just putting it there? Have you not updated your list? Like, what, what's, what's the logic there? I haven't updated my list in probably 10 years. Um, so that's, that's probably part of why it's there. I honestly didn't know that until someone told me that it was number 16 on my all-time list. But um, I got to be honest. Watching this experience, watching it last night, I I thought a lot about how this is number seventeen on Terry's all time list. Like, and I'm not saying that the movie's a bad movie. It's on my top one hundred too. It's just not really a Terry movie. And the fact that it would be higher on your list as opposed to me and Todd, who relish in depressing movies about miserable people, is just sort of I don't know. It's 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 sort of a, a conundrum. I would say it. It's probably not. It it's probably still a top fifty movie. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a top twenty movie anymore, but yeah, you're you're right. It's not necessarily a a, a Terry movie, but it is definitely a movie worth being worth being on an all time list for sure. Even for me. Yeah, it doesn't even seem like a movie you would have even watched. Like, I mean, it seems it seems like a, a movie that you would only have come across because someone would have watched it with you or something. Oh, did we watch it together the first time? I honestly don't remember. I, I don't remember either. I don't know. I actually own the, uh, I have a, a DVD double pack of Pie and Requiem for a Dream that I bought at some point, so. Nice. Yeah. And I think I bought that after I had even seen it. So I was like, ooh, I get I, I get to buy a record for a dream. Oh, and it comes with this other movie Aronofsky made. And uh, Pi ended up being an awesome movie, too. Not quite as good as Requiem, but... So that gets that gets to the next thing I want to talk about. Um, but, and we'll get, to, we'll get to Oscars here in a second, too. Is this Aronofsky's best film? No. 
Todd says no. What would you say is his best film? I, I think The Wrestler... Wrestler for me now is like a top ten movie of all time. So, I mean, I think that's clearly his best movie, but it's also his most restrained movie. This is probably his his biggest artistic achievement, though. I don't see anyone else that could really direct this movie, other than maybe, like, the Safdie brothers. Yeah, that's a good call. Like, when we're about... We're going to do our recasting here in a second, and I think all of us just need to agree that the Safdie brothers would write and direct this if it were made. If yes. it were made now. Uh, Zach, how about you? Is this is this Aronofsky's best movie? Oh, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty clearly uh, Aronofsky's best movie. I know, I know Todd's love of The Wrestler, but... Um, I think he's made, you know, Noah was a sort of a colossal misstep. Um, we actually reviewed the mother in one of, it, we reviewed that, ah, not the mother, mother in one of our earlier episodes, which I think I like. point. A, a lowercase m. Don't, that's the thing that everyone also forgets. Yes. Um, yeah, I was a big fan of that movie. I had it in my top 10 of that year. But, uh, other than that, uh, I, I'm not as big a fan of Black Swan as other people are, um, uh, I think this is his most iconic movie, and it's sort of the one that, if you're going to look up an encyclopedia, Wikipedia definition of Aaron Ar- Darren Aronofsky's aesthetic as a director, like this is absolutely it. I mean, he and, and you know maybe we'll talk about this in a second, but like he kind of does the same thing. I feel like he kind of does the same thing in every movie, especially like with this movie, Black Swan and Mother. It's kind of the same. thing. Thing. Like, if you want to criticize him for something, it's that he needs to maybe be a little bit more innovative. Maybe that's why Todd liked uh, The Russell so much, because it's so much kind of outside his aesthetic. Well, see, the, the fountain was, like, doing all his, his crazy camera stuff in, like, this in a different scope. So, I mean, and uh, that movie was also, like, a massive failure, too. When he gets too ambitious, he, he, uh, he, he, he can't really hold it together, I guess. See, I would say... The, the movie that, that rivals it is Black Swan. I, I'm a huge fan of Black Swan. It was in my top ten of the decade last year, or last last decade. And, uh, it, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, that he kind of does the same thing. Black Swan is def, is kind of like a more refined and sophisticated version of, uh, of the Requiem for a Dream story. But I might say Requiem for a Dream is the better movie because it's so raw. And because it's so messy, because this story needs to be raw and messy, like this is. Like, Darren Aronofsky now could not make Requiem for a Dream. He he would he would mess it up, um, trying to be too artistic. Where this is, it's just so real and raw. And his moments where he uses his art really are to emphasize points, like with just the the clips and the little montage of every time that they that they get high just i mean it, it's so effective in how he uses it that um i'd probably say this is his best movie but black swan is the one that rivals it for me well let's not forget what mickey rourke said is that directors like aaron aronofsky only come around every once every 25 years you know the francis ford coppola's the parkers the adrian lines once every 25 years chimino you know and chimino of course <laughs> Although curiously enough, all f- all five of those directors existed within the same twenty five year period, so I don't quite know what he means by that, but <laughs> that's true. It's, well, it's they're they're true. the people that he worked yeah. with at the time, <laughs> so they're the only ones so, that existed. Um, yeah. So uh, this only got one Oscar nomination. It was Ellen Burstyn for Best Actress. Um, 
did it deserve more? Did it deserve that? What do you guys think? Well, that that's another interesting piece of this movie, which is I remember when it came out, I was 13 years old, but I loved the Oscars even when I was that young. And there was like a big movement. Like when this movie came out after Ellen Burstyn got nominated is that a lot of people basically said it's bullshit that Julia Roberts is going to win because Ellen Burstyn is 10 times better in Requiem for a Dream than Julia Roberts could ever be in any movie. So like, it's just not fair. Maybe we should have, you know, more of an independent I mean, you know, independent Oscars versus mainstream Oscars. I don't know. But there were like some people, some critics, especially I remember that were legitimately appalled that Ellen Burstyn would be in the same category as Julia Roberts. And it was just a given that Julia Roberts was going to win. Looking back on it, I don't think it's quite as egregious as maybe it seemed at the time. In fact, my vote that year would have gone to Laura Linney and you can count on me. But um, I think... You know, Julia Roberts' performance in Aaron Brockovich, I mean, it's fine. It's a legacy award. But Ellen Burstyn does give a truly great performance. And I guess knowing how low budget and kind of fringe this movie was, it's just an honor that it even got nominated. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, but if it got the if it got the recognition enough for Ellen Burstyn to get nominated, I think Jared Leto could have been nominated as well. I think uh, you could have had a nomination for score, maybe even a nomination for editing, um, perhaps some like cinematography type stuff. Uh, I think um, I think it's interesting that the very next year Jennifer Connelly wins an Oscar uh, for A Beautiful Mind. So I mean, she wasn't that far off of uh, of getting the acclaim herself. Um, but yeah, I think it could have easily gotten more. Todd, what do you think? Well, if it was voted on now, it would be way different. I think, I mean, yeah, I, I think editing would be pretty much a lock for a nomination, and the score, I feel like it might be the most iconic score of the of this century. I, there's no way that that doesn't get nominated at this point, and I, I, I find it hard to believe, like, the director nominees had, like, like, a like Billy Elliot and like Soderbergh get a double nomination. Like I, I th- this is the kind of movie that gets nominated for best director, even if it doesn't get nominated for best picture. I, like the, back then, I guess yeah, the it maybe it was too small, but the the voting is done way differently now. I feel like. Yeah, I think I think if this came out in in twenty nineteen, this is a best picture nominee. Yeah. Yeah, probably, and it, I think the t- the the topic was just too taboo um, in two thousand, and you also had another drug movie, Traffic, get a lot of Oscar a- accolades. So maybe it was like, I don't know, you already had the you know the 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 uh, requisite drug movie get nominated. But um, I will also say about the score, I don't think there was any way this score was ever going to be nominated because you look at all those 70-year-old white dudes that are nominating things back in 2000, and there's no way they would nominate a basically all synthesized electronic score like that. I mean, you know, you got to get the John Williams Orchestra. That's that's the only thing they were ever going to nominate. So that that's not particularly surprising. Also, another note about Jennifer Connelly, when she won for Beautiful Mind, that was considered her comeback role. No one really talked about her in this movie. And, like, I mean, yeah, she was bit, she, she had been in, like, Dark City and Inventing the Abbots and a few other movies, but uh, she did not get a lot of recognition for this movie, which, which is unfair. Well, the movie only didn't even gross $4 million at the box office, so people hadn't probably, I mean, still probably hadn't seen it, but... You know, the video release wasn't always right after like it is now, so people probably hadn't even seen the movie by the time she was winning her next 
an Oscar for the next year. This is one of those movies that I think got killed by the NC-17, like, controversy. Because there were several movies in the late 90s and early 2000s that got an NC-17 rating, but the distributor uh, felt that it was necessary to put it out, you know, unrated. And these movies essentially got killed at the box office. Um, Happiness is another good example, the Todd Salons movie and a few others. And they were all good movies, and they got good reviews, and a lot of critics put them on their best-of-the-year list. But... What would have maybe been an Oscar-contending movies 20 years later just got destroyed by the controversy of the rating system. But, but in the 90s, it was all about the, the director, the independent director, and what they wanted to do, and there's no way that they were going to make him compromise his vision in order to get a different rating. So they're just like, okay, you're going to do what you want to do because we want to make the best movies possible. Now, the real, the real unsaid question is, what if Miramax had produced this movie? Then would have it had would it have had more of a Oscar campaign? Because this is the type of movie that Miramax probably would have backed. Let's be honest. But yeah, I mean, I, I imagine it probably it probably would have gotten campaigned a lot. I, I mean, I mean, didn't Miramax produce Train Spotting? I mean, it was that, and that was like, I mean, you know, it's a different movie. It didn't get Oscar recognition, but it got, I think, a lot more attention when it came out. What's more of a cult classic movie, Requiem for a Dream or Train Spotting? Cult classic, I would say Train Spotting. But more critically acclaimed, Requiem for a Dream? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That, that's a good distinction. I mean, though. Requiem for a Dream's never getting a sequel. Train Spotting did. Well, there, there's, there's the, uh, yes, there's the following of Train Spotting, and then there's like people who all respect Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get into, uh, get into our deep dive uh, shenanigans here. We're gonna start with a, uh, with a recasting of this movie, which I found kind of difficult. Uh, we're gonna recast six roles here. Uh, starting with the one we've been talking about, Sarah Goldfarb, played by Ellen Burstyn. Uh, this was like the hardest one for me to find someone to play, um, because she's just so good in it. Um, but, uh, the best, the best option I could come up with was, uh, Catherine O'Hara. I think she's one that might be able to actually pull off some of the, some of this, um, Unless unless you just want to go like all in and go Meryl Streep or something like that, I think I think she's one that is an unlikely one that might be able to pull off what this role requires. Catherine O'Hara would be terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I should feel like she'd be a in a good way or a bad I don't way. Know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, uh, Zach, what do you got for Sarah? Uh, Sarah Goldfarb for me was the easiest. Uh, I it's not a terrible pick, Terry. I don't know. I just feel like she's a little too exaggerated in many of her prime performances. Probably also not well known enough to really like shock people the way that Ellen Burstyn did. For me, it was an obvious pick. I had to go with Angelica Houston. Mm. That'd be interesting. She could absolutely do it. She could. She could. I, that was one I saw too, and I. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't necessarily consider her, though. I don't know why. Todd, what about you? Uh, well, the the one that I thought was the I thought this was also the easiest one, and it's Jessica Lange. 
because I feel like she does a lot of this stuff in American Horror Story, and I, I, I feel uh, like it's almost she's almost exactly the right age, and she has, uh, she could be that crazy, that crazy persona, and I, and I saw that originally they, they had offered this to Faye Dunaway, and she turned it down. I, I feel like there, there's a lot of similarities between Faye Dunaway and Jessica Lange in that way. I also thought Julianne Moore, that was the other one I was considering, but I think she's a little too young, but she would, I think she'd be crazy. Yeah, she's, I mean, do this ten years from now, and Julianne Moore would be a great choice. Jessica yeah. Lange is a good one. Uh, yeah, especially, you, I mean, it's another former Oscar winner, too. I think the tricky thing about the role is, and Ebert pointed this out in his review, is that Ellen Burst in this movie simultaneously is capable of looking absolutely terrible and strung out, along with someone who's overweight and along with someone who looks healthy it's like three different performances in one and so you have to have a really versatile older actress who can do that and i think jessica lang is actually a pretty good choice yeah although i still stand by angelica houston and i i think of the three Catherine o'hara is definitely the riskiest choice but i think it also could be the most brilliant if it worked out imagine and the i think trauma it does bring the shock value. fans I know, it brings that shock value, too. Okay, uh, Harry Goldfarb, uh, portrayed by Jared Leto. Um, my choice for this, is, I mean, you got to go with someone who is, I mean, looks like he could be, like, this successful kid, but also has this, like, has this strung-out look to him, too. I went with Bill Skarsgård. Mm. He's kind of got that, that, that lanky skinny lanky gangly feel to him that vibe to him also with the big eyes that would yeah make you hopeful yet terrify you at the same time zach how about you um yeah this one was sort of tricky to cast because again i don't know how you know terry i know you're pretty rigid when it comes to age both of you have called me out on you know when i named peter simonashek as a role because he's too old I'm not going to name Peter Simonashek as Harry, by the way. Uh, although that would be a really interesting movie. Um, at first I thought Timothy Chalamet. I don't know if he's quite old enough, though. Maybe he's in the, in the same age range. But then I thought he did. He kind of did this performance in Beautiful Boy. So I decided instead to go with Pete Davidson. Because he's also oh, a New wow. Yorker. And, 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 that would, and if you want to talk about shock value, I think like this would be a very you know autobiographical performance in a lot of ways, and he could get the accent right, and that's a movie I'd want to see. I also thought about Vinny from Jersey Shore. Imagine well, and, Pete yeah, Davidson and Catherine he, O'Hara. Imagine the, the confusion. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Pete Davidson, though, that would, be, that would be amazing. That would be really good. I really like that choice. Thank you. I don't get a lot of compliments on my stu- on my recasting, especially not from you, Terry. So I'll I'll take the praise. Well, especially like you said, it, it'd be that autobiographical because he's had his issues with with drug problems. His and 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 you have, I mean, the father is, is has died in this, and Pete Davidson's father and was Pete a Davidson first responder is... that died in nine eleven. And he's from New York. He could get the accent. And he's from New York. Yeah. Yeah, now he'd have a lot to actually work off of in his personal life to make this role work. That's a great choice. All right, Todd, what about you? Well, this would have been a killer Emil Hirsch role in like 2008. Like, I, I feel like he was like born to play that role. But uh, if you're talking current actors, I, there, I I don't really know a lot of people in that age range that, that could have done it. I, I went with Dave Franco because I, I, I feel like he has 
he has this way about him where he can seem really normal and can seem really together, but he he also is really capable of uh, popping one off. So I, I I think I think it'd be really interesting to watch an actor like that take on a like a, such a, a devastating role like this. He'd ha- he'd have to lose the muscle for uh, for a while to make that movie though. Like he's a buff dude. Well, I'm sure Jared Leto had to lose a lot of weight too. True, true. But Leto's one of the, Leto's. He's just one that does that, though. Like, he, he's a Christian Bale in that way that... Oh, I gotta lose 75 pounds for this role? Okay. Oh, put on 100 for the next one? Okay, I can do that, too. I Have either of you seen kinda... the movie uh, where he played John Lennon's assassin? I never yeah. saw that. That one that he gained, like, 100 pounds for? I have not seen it. Yeah, I saw it. Was it any good, Todd? Uh, well, it... Sort of. It, it's, it's, a, it, it's a movie that I guess you have to just sit through because it's a... It's not all that easy to watch, but it, I, I think it, it, he's really good, and I, I think the, I don't know, the, the story is, is worth telling, I guess. It's, I, I'm not sure, I'm not going to say it's a good movie, but I, it's worth watching. And Lindsay Lohan is in it too, right? If I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, she plays like the girlfriend or something. No, I don't think the girlfriend, I, th- I thought she was in it. She's in it, she's in it. I thought it was like one of the Olsen twins. Uh, it's Lindsay Lohan. Um, Pretty sure. Yeah, well, it's been a long time since I watched it. Okay, uh, let's move on. Next one is uh, Marion, played by Jennifer Connelly. Um, this was uh, this was one, like, as I was watching it, it popped into my head who would play this role now, and it just couldn't leave my head, and that's Emma Roberts. Like, it just felt like... I'm like, this is an Emma Roberts role. I don't know why, but it just is. And once that got in my head, I could it couldn't leave. So, Emma Roberts is my pick for Marion. Now, she's easy to put in these kind of roles, uh, mid-20s actresses. I've tried to do that before. <laughs> yeah. Zach, how about you? Yeah, I feel like that's a cop-out. I, you could put her almost in anything. I thought the obvious answer uh, was Kristen Stewart. I mean... Someone who could look simultaneously glamorous, but also addicted to drugs, and probably is willing to do uh, a lot of stuff on camera that other actresses wouldn't be willing to do. I also thought, oh, but I forgot to mention this. I did a Jersey Shore recasting of this film, so that's why I said Vinny as Harry. And then I also put Wow as Marion, because I have nothing better to do with my life, and I've been rewatching Jersey Shore. And this movie does take place close to the Jersey Shore. Actually, there's some un- uneasy parallels between this movie and the Jersey Shore, especially in the scenes when they're on like Coney Island, on like the beach. That's a lot like season one of Jersey Shore. I felt like fascinating. <sighs> All right, Todd. All right, I had two options for this one. One of them was. Um, Morgan Saylor, who is uh, most probably known for playing the daughter in Homeland, uh, she also she did a movie called White Girl, where she played a really convincing drug addict living on the streets, and I, that was the main reason why I thought of her. And the other one was uh, what would have been like a really sort of bizarre turn in their career for Abigail Breslin. I feel like she had she needs a, another role to to push her back into in like critically acclaimed work and uh i i don't feel like there'd be anything to push her further away from what she's been doing than this that would be an interesting one especially considering i mean it would follow a similar career path of jennifer Connolly, where she was a child actress and this is one of the roles that kind of announced her as 
as being an adult now, and it'd be kind of a similar thing for Abigail Breslin. But I think she's like That's 12 years younger than Dave Franco, so I'm not sure how well that would work. <laughs> uh, all right, next we have Tyrone, played by... Name that Wayans. Which Wayans was this? <laughs> Marlon, wasn't it? Yeah, Marlon Wayans. Uh, this was a. Uh, I don't. I, I don't love this choice, but it's a choice I went with. Um, I went with John Boyega. He uh, he got notoriety for being in Star Wars, but he's also shown that I mean he in the middle of Star Wars he did Detroit too. So he he can do these kind of smaller roles, these grittier roles, and I think he's a really good actor. And so. Um, Seeing him in something like this, I think, would be really interesting. All right. Zach, how about you? Would he do it with a British accent? No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. Okay, my first instinct, uh, like I said, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna try to be better about not at, uh, casting actors who are too old. So my first instinct was Andre Holland, who played Kevin in Moonlight. But then I looked him up on IMDb, and he's 41 years old, so I thought that might have been a little old to be hanging out with Pete Davidson. So instead, I went with Daniel Ezra, who is the main actor from the Netflix series All-American, and he's really good in that show, and um, I think it's, you know, it's you know, the most notable thing about Marlon Wayans is that he was a comic actor, still is a comic actor. Um, he's not really particularly funny in Requiem for a Dream, but it showed that he's really versatile. And Daniel Ezra can be really funny and he can be really serious in All-American. And I don't know, I'd like to see him in more stuff. But but I, I will also say that uh, that uh, Andre Holland is also a really good choice. If you're if you're gonna go slightly older, oh, and my Jersey Shore pick would be uh, Ronnie from Jersey Shore. He'd have to he'd have to lose some of the muscles, but he could do it. All right, Todd. Uh, well, I thought there was only one choice, and that was obviously Lakeith Stanfield, like because I mean, the, I, oh well, yeah, that's but, of course. Uh, but because I didn't want to choose him for, like, the fifth time, I went with O'Shea Jackson Jr. I, I don't think you really have to be that skinny to play that uh, to play Tyrone, but he, uh, he, 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 needs a, he needs another, uh, he needs another dramatic role, I think. And I, th this would be a really odd choice, but I think, I think it would be good. All right, all right. Uh, next... We have the role of Tappy Tibbins, played wonderfully by the one and only Shooter McGavin, Christopher McDonald. Um, he will always be Shooter McGavin. Anyways, uh, for this one, I mean, you gotta have that, like, that dynamic personality that would be leading, like, an infomercial type deal. Uh, I went with Mark Paul Gosselar. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, wow. I mean, Zach Morris grown up turns into uh, Tappy Tibbins. I, I could see it. I could see it working, and I could see him work in the room like that. So that's what I went with. He'd be more like Jordan Chase than Tappy Tibbins. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. So, All right, Zach. Terry, your remake is just traumatizing people who grew up in the 90s then. <laughs> that's what we're going with. That's what we're going with. That's what we're going with. That, uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, I've got 
you know, the Home Alone mom. I've got Zach Morris. I've got uh, I've got Julie Roberts' niece and uh, uh, Pennywise from It. So uh, yeah, and and Star Wars. So it's it's all bad, <laughs> but in a good way. All right. Well, just don't put Neil Patrick Harris in the cast, okay? That would be a little too much. Um, I thought about it. I'm sure you did. <laughs> uh, okay, I went with. Uh, well, it was it was a tough one. I'll tell you, m- my second choice was Mickey Rourke because I thought he would, you know, just because of the Aronofsky connection. But in all seriousness, I decided to go with Adam Sandler. But he would be, it would be like the same performance that he had in Uncut Gems as Howard. As Howard, as Tappy. <laughs> and, and you'd and have you to wear a blue suit. didn't know that we were going to say the Safdie brothers should direct it. So that's really funny. Well, I thought the Safdie. So if, if we were going to recast the director, I, I said the Safdie brothers as well. I, that's just yeah. that's just obvious. Yeah, that's just a given. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, funny. Okay, Todd. Well, uh, maybe because I've seen uh, so many of these fake commercials on his TV show that is on right now, I, I went with Bob Odenkirk because I. I, I, I feel like there's so many similarities that especially if you were look at their like personal lives between um, Tappy Tibbins and uh, Jimmy McGill and slash Saul Goodman. I, I, I think I, this one I thought was obvious. I thought all three of us would say Bob Odenkirk, but I, I, I guess I'm wrong. I thought all three of us would say Greg Kinnear. I mean, it's the same role that he had in Little Miss Sunshine. That's true. That's true. Sort of. But see, I, I, think, I think the thing here also is... Uh, Tappy Tibbins also, you have to have just that little bit of the sex appeal for the older women, too. Like, he doesn't have a ton of it, but he's got, he's got, like, you know, that, the, the Sarah Goldfarbs of the world look at, look at Tappy Tibbins and say, look at that good-looking, successful man on the television. And, uh, yeah. I don't know if Odenkirk brings that out in people. (laughs) So, in other words... Maybe Tappy should be played by Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> I, you, you know that that's that's not bad. <laughs> uh, okay, so the last one we are recasting is uh, is Big Tim, uh, the uh, the dealer that uh, that Maid Marian goes to at the end. Uh, originally played by Keith David. Um, I don't know. Todd wanted to recast this one, so he threw it in there. I went with Mackay Pfeiffer. Um, He's he still alive. Even, he could even bring back the dreads from Eight Mile if he wants to. Just you know, <laughs> Mackay Pfeiffer still doing work. Like, what what has he been in the last? I honestly don't years? know. I saw his name. I'm like, oh yeah, that one makes sense. <laughs> Let me look what he's done. I honestly don't know. Has he done anything since ER? I mean, most most of the actors you've cast, Terry, were passe even in 2000 when this movie was made. You realize that, right? <laughs> I think the He's last, in a TV show right now. I think the last time I saw Mackay Pfeiffer, he was on, like, Celebrity Poker in, like, 2005. He's been, he's been on a few TV shows. He was on the, the remake of Roots. Well, there you go. I didn't even know uh, there was, he was a remake in, of Roots. He was in... He was in the uh, the Divergent series. He was in House of Lies. Well, he's so killing he's, it. He's kind of been around. 
Anyways, that's what I went with. Well, hopefully he's still getting uh, royalty checks from Eminem when uh, he mentions him in uh, in his song. Well, he's, he's got to be getting royalty checks from, uh, you know, syndicated ER episodes still being on TV. All right, Zach. Mackay, Mackay Pfeiffer. I haven't thought about him in a long time. Okay. Um, th- this, to me, was the hardest one to recast. And I just went with Lance Reddick because I mentioned him in a previous episode. And he'd have his dual role, right? He would play Tyrone, too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, Lance Reddick. Even though he's probably too young to play him. All 54 years old. You didn't, you didn't go uh, Peter Simonashek. That was the That was the spot to put him. Yeah, you know, I thought about it. But <laughs> All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, so, yeah, Lance Reddick was my first uh, instinct, but I decided to be real, and I went with... Uh, Are you serious? His, his, <laughs> his, uh, his co-star in The serious. Wire. No, no, I, I did. I actually have him written down. But uh, I went with Michael Kenneth Williams. I, like, I, I feel like Big Tim needs to be like this, like, sort of, like, imposing figure... And I, I don't see anybody that, that looks more intimidating without, even without even needing to speak than Michael Kenneth Williams. And I, I, I feel like he's around the right age. He's around the right shape. I, 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 think he's, I think he'd be a good choice. Well, if you want, like, intimidating look, you could have gone with, like, Terry Crews. <laughs> but, the, I mean, but that would fit. That's your reboot, Terry, because you have Catherine O'Hara <laughs> as Sarah. That, again, that fits with the comic 90s uh... reboot that you're envisioning no see see if you want to go like comic 90s you you like pick some random like 90s nba player to to come in and like like charles barkley is big tim that would be <laughs> come on in maid marion <laughs> or sean kemp he could do it Shut up. Oh, gosh. i mean he's got a, he's got some alimony checks he's looking for work oh that that would probably fit a little too well Okay, let's get let's get into uh, into the rest of this here. Highest war performance, uh, Todd. Who's your highest war? Uh, I went with Jennifer Connelly because I I don't I don't at the at that time I don't I don't see how you could have any more of a staggering transformation between two thousand and two thousand one where she looks here like she could be early twenties and then in the ne- very next year she's winning an Oscar for playing a character that she has to be way more mature looking and and she has to feel way more mature and and i don't know she's got to be at least in her 40s at some point in that movie and i don't know i i think she's fat fantastic in this movie and a, a lot of the things that she does are just really daring and and like really she, she like gets under your skin more than any other character and i it, it that was one of the hardest roles to recast just because I, I mean i think she is uh, like i think she would, should have won the oscar that year All right. Uh, I'm going to go next. By the way, uh, Jennifer Connelly, I will say, as I'm watching this, I was thinking, man, she in this movie, especially at the beginning, is just like Stone Cold Knockout. I mean, the, she is just like... It, it, just beautiful in this movie, I think, at, at, especially at the beginning. Um, and she's on a date with her shrink. No, I, th- n- I, not even then. Like, like, the way she is with Harry, I think that yeah. Anyways, um, my highest war. It's Ellen Burstyn. 
I mean, she is just like I said, this was the that was the hardest role to recast because she is able to show so many different things and I think Zach, you're the one that said it's she basically gives three different performances in this. Um, in the three different eras of what is going on with her. Um, and she shows that it, it's one of those where she is one of those just great all-time actresses and it took a role like this to remind everyone that she was that. Um, so Ellen Burstyn, I think, is easy, easily, easily the highest war in this one. Zach, how about you? Um, well, I thought about at first going with uh, Sarah Goldfarb's Refrigerator because it does give a really solid performance in this movie. It's pretty menacing. It's pretty unforgettable. But uh, if we're talking about human actors, oh, I think, and we clearly just said, why, Keith David. I mean, he's not in the movie for very much, but there's no way. You, I, I found it impossible to recast him. Absolutely no one else could play that role. Like, if, and, you know, yes, obviously this is a movie full of really good performances, but, like, there's no one else who could play that. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a perfect Keith David role, and, uh, you know, you'll never think about him the same way again. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Is it his voice that that makes him so irreplaceable? Because I feel like he like he had this similar thing in like Crash, right? Or it's like I, that's another role. I just like he's in there for like a scene, and I'm like I can't forget that character. Yeah, he was also in Platoon, and uh, I don't remember him in Platoon, but I bet he was good in it. I do remember him in Platoon vaguely. Yeah, I mean, By the way, he, like he looks the same as he did in 1986. Like he does now, yeah. and, and it, it's crazy. And yeah, he he like got a niche for in that in that that role. Yes, he was born in 1956, so that makes him you know 20 or 43, 44 when he made the movie, and now he's 64 and he looks the same. He's probably always been the same. Probably. All right, so that's highest war. Now let's go the other direction. Worst performance, Zach. Who? What? What was the worst performance in this? Worst performance in the movie. Uh, come back to me. <laughs> it's a hard one, isn't it? Um. Yeah. No. Yeah. Nothing just stands yeah. out. Todd, do you have one? Uh, well, I I said Dylan Baker as the Southern Doctor. Because he's he's only got I think he has like one line, but his facial expressions are so over the top that I, it, that is not the way any doctor is going to react to seeing anything. Even though his arm is pretty like repulsive, there's no way he's going to like almost take a step back in like shock and then like stagger out of the room by grabbing all the drugs. Like it's, it's just a, I mean maybe it's a bad character, but I think that he he was sort of a notable name at the time, and that's probably why he had to overdo it in his one scene. But I was I, I thought I have never liked that character. See, my, my answer was going to be, like, every doctor in the movie. Because you've got that one. You've got Sarah's doctor who just walks in and is like, Oh, you're a little overweight. Okay, we can take care of that. And then walks out and, like, doesn't even look at her. Uh, and then you also have the shrink. I think the shrink, it, that's just... The other ones may be bad characters. The shrink is just kind of a lousy... The one thing you could say is kind of a lousy performance. 
Yeah, I don't know if I'd call Dylan Baker a bad performance. It's a weird performance because, like, I think he was too well-known in 2000 to get a role that small. And you kind of wonder if maybe there were more scenes with him that were taken out in the editing room. But, like, it's strange to see him in that small of a role. And usually he plays really, like, dirtball characters. But Well, the uh, isn't the, the shrink, that's the guy from Pi, right? That's the main character in Pi? Yeah. Oh, is it? I missed that. I haven't seen Pi in so long. Well, kind of going off of what Todd said, I think I'm I'm going to name uh, my uh, worst performance in in that from also that section of the movie, and that is Hubert Selby Jr. as the guard who spews racist epithets at uh, the Marlon Wayans character, and uh, it's like it's like basically a Stan Lee cameo. I mean, they just wanted to throw him in there and have him laugh demonically and shout things, and uh, I don't know. It takes takes away a little bit from the realism but whatever he's like a mix of stan lee and like uh peter boyle in monsters ball wow that's a that's a mix (laughs) (laughs) all right favorite minor character i'm gonna go first on this one my favorite minor character um was uh the mailman uh, I I I just uh, I naga, mean naga. By the, it's yeah. Uh, AJ Nana Nana not gonna be working here anymore because it's the same. Is it same year or the year after he did Office Space? He is the mailman in Requiem for a Dream, and he's like the one character that has a line that that actually has some comedy to it. As she's always asking him, uh, Sarah Goldfarb, do you have any mail for me? And he's finally he's like if i if i do i'll come waving it in the air as i come by um yeah he's the one character that brings a little bit of levity and uh even if it's just that one line that he had there but uh yeah and it was the one guy's like hey it's the only other thing i've ever seen you in so mailman is my favorite minor character todd how about you uh, I actually went with uh, Peter Maloney as Doctor Pill, who is Sarah's doctor, because he played the exact he played he was in the the same year he played Doctor Jacobs in Boiler Room, and I'm pretty sure he was wearing the same coat. He he looks the same way. He's like sucking on a lozenge or something. It's he had a high war for like throwaway doctor roles at that time apparently, and uh, yeah, I I the first thing I saw I was like oh it's Doctor Jacobs that's who they sell uh, Ferro Tech to over, over the speakerphone, you know. <laughs> and his name's Dr. Pill. He may actually be Dr. Jacobs. They just call him Dr. Pill because he gives her a bunch of pills. <laughs> Conspiracy theory. Maybe, maybe 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 he was selling maybe he gave her uh ferrotech drugs. Yeah, there you go. Conspiracy, Conspiracy theory. theory. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Todd, how was Giovanni Giovanni Ravisi not cast as Harry in this movie? Yeah, I was actually thinking about that since, especially since they use the same doctor. I, I I think that they probably like were betting on something, and they and the like. Eventually, Aronofsky lost the bet, and he had to cast Leto instead of Rabisi. I think they could have easily flipped roles, and it would have been maybe even better. Because I think I, I think about better, but it could have been comparable. I don't. I, I mean, I I think Leto would be amazing in Boiler Room. But I, I don't know, Rubisi, I, I feel like, could be, I mean, I don't know. I, he wouldn't have the physical transformation that Letter does, but 
I, I actually did. I wrote that down. It's a conspiracy theory that they actually lost a bet and had to decide who was going to be in the lead in their movie. Nice. Nice. All right, Zach, who's your favorite minor character? Well, I don't know if he counts as a minor character, but can I say Tappy Tibbins? I mean, he is such sure. he is such a great character that, and I want to talk about this. It, I don't, did either, you, did you watch this on DVD or Blu-ray? Like, the main menu yes. of the movie is Tappy Tibbins. It's not Requiem for a Dream. It doesn't show Marlon Wayans or Jennifer Connelly. It shows Tappy Tibbins, okay? And it's his, it's his 30 Days of Fury, uh, you know, um, infomercial. And then all the special features, if you go to them, it's just different segments of his infomercial. And I think that is a, uh, a metaphor for how great this character is, that he is the breakout star of this movie. And I think the most amazing thing about it is that, like, according to Darren Aronofsky's uh, commentary, not only is Tappy Timmons... So, Tappy Timmons is, is, a, is a made-up character. He's not in the novel. He's not in the Hubert Selby novel. He did, uh, Christopher McDonald did all of his filming in one day. But my favorite thing that I learned about Tappy Timmons in uh, Aronofsky's commentary is that Tappy Timmons is a character that Aronofsky had for like 10 years prior to this movie. And he originally was a fortune teller who wanted to go straight. And so uh, Aronofsky in college wrote a uh, screenplay about Tabby Tibbins leaving the world of fortune telling and becoming like a, you know, a stockbroker or some bullshit like that. That is a movie I want to see Darren Aronofsky make. It sounds like a character that Darren Aronofsky just needs to have in every one of his movies. Tabby Tibbins needs to pop up in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, it's very yeah like, like Red Apple Cigarettes. Just saying. And I just looked it up. True. It is thirty nine ninety five, Terry. I should have won trivia. Just is it thirty nine ninety five? Because I, yeah. <laughs> as so, it, it was funny. It, like you? as I was saying it, as I was saying it to Zach, I'm like, I wrote down thirty nine ninety nine. As I'm saying, I'm like, wait, was it ninety nine or ninety five? Well, I, I wrote down ninety nine, so that's what we're going with. But I gave you the point. All right. You still lost by one. Um. Just I'm surprised so, that. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say, Christopher McDonald is nominated for my best supporting actor in 2000. By the way, I mean, I I, I look at Tappy Tibbins, and it's basically like this is what. Here, here's my conspiracy theory. Um, this is uh, Tappy Tibbins is the new alias of Shooter McGavin after his golf career ended poorly after um, after he took what was Mr. Gilmore's. And uh, and went running with After it. He lost and, uh, championship. He needed, yeah, he needed something else to do, and uh, so he started uh, doing this because he he just is. It's both. It's Christopher Christopher McDonald. He has just that smug vibe to him in both movies. That's so similar. So, I mean, can't can't you see Tappy Tibbins like we got a winner? Shoot up. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I'm also surprised that uh, that none of us said Mr. Rabinowitz, uh, played by Mark Margolis. A.K.A. Tio Salamanca. Yep. Mm-hmm. Did not know that until watching it this time. Did not, re- did not realize that connection. One of many connections between this movie and Breaking Bad. By the way, I started Breaking Bad again this week. From the beginning? Just on a side note. From, I, I started over from the beginning. It's been way too long since I'd watched any of it, so I'm starting from the beginning. I finished Game of Thrones, so now I can go into uh, into Breaking Bad. Game of Thrones last season, I understand why it was so controversial. 
It was, it was, it, it, I didn't mind it. it. It was solid, but I understand why people didn't like it. Anyway, sort of like me with Dexter. That's a complete. Yeah, well, the Dexter actually was bad at the end last season. I didn't like mind. No, nope. yeah, that's the Very, best thing about Breaking I, Bad. It's the only I show with its last season was a great season. I would say the last season of Game of Thrones, it, it's better, but I could see it. It's comparable to Dexter in how it upset people. In just the way it ends, it's like that's not how this is. This was supposed to end. Anyways, okay, moving on. Biggest stick man, Zach. Well, I, I, there's definitely some some possibilities here. Uh, we we see a lot of pretty active stick men in this movie. You could go with Tyrone. I mean, he's definitely getting it in with that one lady for no real reason. That's sort of a scene that doesn't really have any sense in this movie, but it's it's definitely there. Um, you could uh, probably also go with uh, Marion Shrink, um, Arnold the Shrink. But uh, I think in the end, there's, I mean, don't you kind of have to go with Big Tim? I mean, Big Tim is, you know, giving out uh, drugs in exchange for sexual favors. So, um, you know, and, and he's not one of the guys who's like, you know, waving, you know, the, the money at the event like it's, you know, some kind of cockfight. So uh, I'm going with Big Tim, played by the inimitable Keith David. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, the guy who likes broads. Um, Whenever that's that's what you're known by, yeah, you're kind of a stick man. He's yeah. sort of the definition yeah. of his. I mean, it's an it's it's like a dark, like darkly not even that funny stick man. It's like oh shit, just got real stick man. But he's definitely <laughs> in the like upper echelons of stick men. So so my my initial yeah, it, it's hard not to go with Big Tim, but I tried to I tried to do something else. Uh, my initial thought in going with another stickman was Tappy, but one of his rules is no orgasms. No orgasms. So, how can he be a, a stickman? Um, I mean, you or can. Well, he's, you just, know, that... or he's just like every other infomercial guy and completely thinks what he's selling is garbage. Now, hold so. on, Terry. We could, on this episode 69 of the Almost Sideways podcast, we could still consider him a stickman. And him abiding by his third rule, which would make him almost like a, a, an amazing stick man in a way. I mean, that, that would almost be worth, like, bowing down to. But I see this is going in uncomfortable it'd, it'd, it'd territory. make him so like I'm a just, robot. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> this last one drives people crazy. <laughs> uh, Todd. What do you got? Oh, I, I went with Tyrone. Just because, I mean, that chick he was with was smoking hot. And I, I mean, I don't know how he... Uh, is that his girlfriend? Or, like, who is that? Like, she's only in that, like, one scene. And uh, I I don't know. And I, I feel like to let her into his, his uh, like, apartment where they keep all their money and all their drugs, I don't know. I feel like he would have, she'd have to be, like, either some complete fling or someone really close to him. But, I mean, yeah. She was hot, man. I, I, I think Tyrone's a stickman. I agree with Zach, though. This is, like, the strangest scene in the entire movie. I mean, it, and it's such a throwaway scene where you have, you know, you have them laying there, and he gets up to look at his mirrors that he just bought and think about his mother. Uh, I mean, oh, yeah, he, it, he was it's high. It's just... <laughs> 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 it 
is just a strange scene. Uh, okay. Biggest My wife bag. named uh, Marlon Wayne's ass as the MVP of the movie, by the way. That's, uh, I'll allow it. Okay. Sorry, God, Terry. Biggest douchebag. Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of think it's Harry, because I, I think he... He like overreacts to everybody, and uh, he, you know, he obviously he pimps out his girlfriend to uh, just to get a score. And I don't know. He, I mean, he keeps stealing his mother's TV just so she can buy it back instead of just getting cash from her. I don't, it, it, he's, a, I mean, I think he's a douchebag douche by definition. That's a good call. I I went I went with Big Tim because I mean, how how much douchey can you be? How much more douchey can you be than, you know, having the arrangement he has set up? Like, like, like Zach, like you said, he's known for that. So how he's known as that, that that's, that's like the ultimate in douche. And I would say might actually disqualify him for being a stick man. Well, yeah, he's shown up on a lot of our lists. Yeah, I, uh, like shockingly, the movie is not about Tappy and Big Tim, but uh, I know. Amazing. If you were to listen to our trivia and all these categories, you'd think it would. Be. I mean, they're, well, they're, if, they're if main gonna, actors. If you're gonna make oh, so we're much, of, so much of the crap we talk about in our deep dive is just is just making light of everything, and this is a movie you can't really make light of. So we make light of the characters you can make light of. <laughs> I think we need to see a Tappy and Big Tim movie. <laughs> this needs to happen. Make it like a modern day lethal weapon. What does Big Tim actually do for a living? Like, I mean, I don't think he he just does, like organizes that stuff. Like, he's got to have a real job, right? Oh, clearly, yeah. I mean, I I was thinking like high end stockbroker, maybe. Like, he's got this high rise apartment clearly in Manhattan. He's doing something pretty big, right? Maybe he works at maybe he works at the, the freaking uh, boiler room uh, place. No, he's That's too what old. I was though. just thinking he's too old. He's too old. Yeah, when you're 27, you're a senior citizen. He's a little older. He's definitely one that got the Glen Gary leads. And let's just say he pitches the bitch. Okay, that's a violation of the rules. That's true. <laughs> uh, all right, Zach. I don't think you named a douchebag. Yeah, originally I was going to go with Angel because he uh, spiked the price of his heroin apparently only because it's winter. Like, that's sort of a douchey thing to do. But the only reason I was going to go with Angel was because I thought Todd's douchebag was going to be obvious, and I'm amazed he didn't go with this one because this is the most top pick ever. Uh, but I guess I'll say it. Robert Dylan Cohen as paramedic Greenhill because if you listen to the paramedic when he's um, subduing uh, Sarah, he's talking about how he was at a poker game and he won $500, but he, he refused to make any more bets after he won, so he got kicked out. <laughs> And that's pretty douchey. <laughs> yeah, that, that, like, watching it this last time, I, I never actually heard what they were talking about, because you're, like, so wrapped up in whatever else is going on, the music and stuff, but then when I heard that they were talking about that, I was like, that, that is, that's kind of awesome. And yeah, it's this douche thing to do, but it's also kind of, <laughs> it's also kind of great. <laughs> that's what they would be doing. Well, don't people do that at poker tournaments? Like, they, like, they double up and get, like, a decent-sized stack, and then they just leave the table and... Till they get in the money. Well, yeah, you could do that. I mean, a tournament, you could 
do that for sure. But I mean, if you're just gonna, if you if you want a big hand in like a cash game or blackjack or something, and you just like linger around and don't actually play again, like yeah, they're gonna get upset with you. Yeah, yeah. All right, who would Nicholas Cage play? I think he'd be an awesome tappy. Like, it would be electric to, to see Nicolas Cage do that kind of thing. And I feel like he might do it. <laughs> uh, I think the is, obvious answer is Big Tim. I know, that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> it, is, it is the Tappy and Big Tim movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking about that too. I, and if it was 1987, like, he would play Harry. Yeah, yeah, like like twenty something Nick Cage would have definitely been a great Harry. But uh Yeah, maybe like two thousands Nick Cage could have been like the shrink or something. That would have been weird. <laughs> yeah, that would have been weird. I think I think this is one of those rare movies where Nick Cage probably could have played every character. I mean because he also could have played like the the shrink. He could have played Doctor Pill. He could have played. He could have been at the party, uh, you know, with Jennifer Connelly. I think. I think he virtually could play any character, with the exception of Tyrone, because That's he's not black. Outside, outside of like the four leads, every other character is pretty nondescript. Like, there's every other character. There isn't really much going on. There's there's the four leads and everybody else. All right. Um, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about flaws, or what I'm thinking more is I I don't see a whole lot of flaws in this besides the scene with the girl and him thinking of his mother. Um, I want to talk about has this does this movie hold up? Is this movie outdated? <laughs> Wait a second. Is, why is that a flaw? <laughs> I don't, maybe that said it's a pointless scene. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were saying the flaw was that he was thinking about his mother. Maybe that's just you know, that's what he's into. No, 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 no. I we, we said edible. it was a pointless scene. That's why. I, that's why we're saying it was a flaw. No, I, I want to talk about. It. Hey, I don't mind that scene. It's not a bad scene, as Todd said. You know, she's smoking hot in that scene. It's not. It's not a bad scene. It's just it. It doesn't really add scene. to anything, but yeah. you know, it's not a bad scene. Let's let's be clear right, about so, that. So, if you have any flaws, you can say them. But I, I'm thinking, does this movie hold up? Is it outdated? What in this is outdated? Um, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I I guess maybe the DVD. Uh menu is kind of outdated that was a big thing like i remember memento had a similar thing where it's like you had to like mm-hmm. guess your way to even start the movie like that was a thing when dvds were first popular that like they, they did that had nothing to do with the movie another flaw i have is that when they have like like giant like uh uh the drug deal scene like there's no way that they would have like all these guys that are like look like they're like trying to like catch a t-shirt out of out of a t-shirt cannon or something like I, I like i don't know what they're doing like that's so disorganized you'd have a drug deal with like individual people you wouldn't have like a mob of people kind of like zach said they look like they're at a cockfight or something and uh also uh the number for uh tappy tibbins is too many numbers there's eight numbers in the phone number that is definitely i don't under i don't really get that unless it's all, all like the entire tappy tibbins thing is all just in her head or something yeah those are all things i thought of 
it's funny you mentioned the phone number because I think I read in the IMDb trivia that the phone number, Big Tim's phone number, because we haven't talked about Big Tim in a while, um, his phone number is only six digits. Well, no, he only writes six digits, but you can hear him say all the digits. Oh, okay. But it didn't start with 555, so it actually was a real phone number. It's interesting that both Big Tim and Tappy Tibbins are the only ones with their with phone numbers in the movie. <laughs> it's what's why they're important. I also thought like the I think the ass to ass scene and the Tappy Tibbins scenes are shot in this uh, like in the same room. Like I think with the same extras even because I, I feel like the, those people in suits ha- are like the exact same rowdiness. Like it feels like the same environment. It looks like the same room and the same like even like lighting. It's kind of weird. Um. I think one one thing you could definitely say is outdated is there's no way that Harry is getting any money for uh, Sarah's rabbit-eared television uh, that's still, you know, like old 70s tube top that or tube box that you need to take da- that, yeah, that they would walk across town and get 20 bucks for. There's no, there's no way. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good point. What I thought you were going to say, Terry, is uh, the the supposedly upgraded TV that Harry buys Sarah also looks very outdated. Oh yeah, I mean, you that's something in stuff like this is technology is definitely um, is definitely outdated. There would be they wouldn't need to be like driving to Florida to go get more stuff. I mean, that the, there's that that stuff like that doesn't happen. If you have technology, if you have cell phones, if you have the internet, stuff like that. Um, I think overall, though, this movie definitely holds up, right? I, even watching it now, it still has the impact it, it, it's meant to have. It still has the same, is able to portray the same message. It still feels like it's an important movie. Uh, would you guys agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you could maybe make the case that this movie is not very nuanced when it comes to drug addiction. Like, these people are full-on drug addicts. And I feel like in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of different depictions. Like, you could even look at Breaking Bad um, or something like Nurse Jackie or other shows or movies that have shown how people try to cope, try to balance having an actual working, functioning life with also being a drug addict. Versus this movie where, you know, the drug addiction basically takes over their life. So I feel like maybe this movie is outdated in the sense that it, it doesn't show the nuances of, of balancing those things. I mean, it, it's either like one full thing or the other, and there's no real in-between. I don't, well, I mean, it does, it does show them like when they, like how good they feel when they're actually getting high. But I mean, it, it really is like a, a really like a slam in the face with like, because like, these are people on the brink of the entire movie. But I, I don't know. There's a little up and down, but definitely not in the way that other movies did, like Train Spotting and Traffic, I guess. Yeah, and I'm not necessarily saying it's a flaw in the movie. I just think, like, I think if this movie were to get remade today, I think the emphasis would be a little bit more like, like, for example, you know, we don't, you know, uh, uh, the Jennifer Connelly character, they mention that she wants to open up, like, some kind of shop, but they never, like, show it at all. And maybe that's sort of the point. I mean, you know, they they really are consumed with drugs, but... Like, we don't get a sense of what these people, like, do during the day normally, so I don't know. I just feel like that's something that, that's something that has changed in the way of filmmaking, like, the last 20 years. Well, Sarah obviously sits yeah, on the sidewalk all day. That's true. Well, at the same time, though, it's a, it's a very different 
it's a very different story in that these people are are trying to find a way to to work their way up where like some of the other shows and stories that you mentioned zach are ones where people already have status and and are trying to fight through their drug addiction through the while maintaining their status where this is a story of people trying to gain status and climb the ladder through drugs and and how that that is you know how that can be a cautionary tale and how drugs just wreck the dreams that you think you have so i have i have a question like who do you feel the worst for in this movie because like everyone ends at a pretty low spot but who, who do you actually feel the worst for i would say probably tyrone because the only right way Tyrone ended up where he was is by trying to do the right thing for his friend. Like if he doesn't, if he doesn't take Harry to the to the hospital, and choose to stay waiting for him in the waiting room, he he doesn't end up in the situation he's in. I, I think he's the one guy that you could say one character who you could say he did one hundred percent the right thing and got burned for it. I completely disagree with you, Terry. I think Tyrone's the only one that I would want to be at the end of the movie because by the end of the movie, he's now cold turkey. He's no, he's not on drugs anymore. He see of the th of the four of them, he seems to be able to control his urges the most, and like he's not like you know he hasn't lost his arm or anything. Like I feel like there's the most hope for him at the end of the movie, and like quietly, the reason he goes to jail is because he jumped bail, right? I mean, the movie doesn't really say that, but like. The, it's it's not because of his drug use necessarily that he's in jail. It's because that he skipped out on bail. Well, I, well no, because well, I thought it was always because he went there with the guy who's getting arrested. Also, who's for, like I don't know. I mean, I, I'm with Terry though. I I think Tyrone. I I I feel bad for him because yeah, he I think he was being a good friend in the end, and I think he has goals and ambitions. He clearly loves his mother. Uh, like, but I think he's a genuinely good guy, and like he does he he doesn't like freak out on everybody. He looks genuinely upset at at Harry when when they he ends up blowing all of their money. I I think that he just is a good friend to Harry, and and that's why he, he like kind of puts up with him. But I don't think they're on the same level at all. And he ends up in prison, like detoxing by himself alone. Like I mean, like I he looks miserable, and I I I do I I feel for Harry or Tyrone more than I do for anyone else. Well, yeah, maybe I misunderstood the question. Like, I, I, I agree with you. Like, he's probably the most sympathetic of the four of them. But, like, in terms of what happens to him at the end of the movie, he's probably in the best position to actually, like, survive and maybe reclaim something of his life. I think the person, like, that I feel the the worst for is Sarah. I mean, she's, like, near death. Her son, you know, has abandoned her, essentially. And, you know, she's uh, has nothing to live for. That's true. Well... Uh, well, I, I don't know, I think Marion's in a better spot, she's still, like, not in prison, and she has a bunch of money now, and I, I feel like she can do what she wants now, it, it, I don't know how much money she actually had in that water cash, but I mean, maybe she can open her shop, and she knows that Harry's gone, like, I But she, she has the least control over her life, though, I mean, the only reason, she's gonna burn through that cash on, on, on getting high, I mean, you, you know that. She's not gonna. She's the one you look at. It's like there's no way, she, you there's no, like, turn in sight. She's still going down, going off the deep end, at the end of this. But she's but um, she she's willing to do what it takes to get the money back anyway. Like so, I mean, she's still 
She's not doing. She's, she's not doing that to get money. She's doing that to get a fix. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, but she does still want to open her up her what what are her clothing shop or whatever it is. But I mean, but she's willing to do what it takes to get to get money to in order to fuel that. When like Tyrone and Harry have to like commit crimes or like freeze their ass off in the fucking streets or whatever, you know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't I, I think I think Marion actually is is in a pretty good spot once she gets Harry out of her life which she knows that, she, that he's gone I think I think she'll be okay. See, I interpreted that the complete opposite way. At the end of it, Marion's the one dragging Harry down, and Harry's trying to be legit, and all Marion wants to do is get high, and Marion shows that she's mentally unstable. Then the fact that she needed therapy at one point. And I think the end of the movie just shows how much she needed that therapy to have any control over what's going on in her life. She's going to end up going back to Big Tim, like, weekly, at least, to get her fix. Yeah. And end be. up and end up in the exact same spot the rest of them are. I would say it's kind of... I would say it's easy to feel sorry for Harry, too, simply in the fact... And I would say this is a flaw as well. Um, there is no way, no way a, uh, a guy like Harry goes to an emergency room, um, because of what's going on in his arm, a doctor looks at it and sends him to prison without treating him. There is no way. Sure, call the cops, but you treat him, and if he's treated right there, he doesn't lose his arm. So maybe Dylan Baker is a douchebag, too. When I think the first so. Time. <laughs> uh, alright we've mentioned a few conspiracy theories already anybody can have I mention, any others yeah can I mention one more thing that's outdated about this movie oh sure is, uh, the ass to ass scene I think is a little outdated in the sense that this is a movie that I think is crescendoing in its last 30 minutes to more and more appalling uh, things on screen and it's getting worse and worse and we see you know uh, Sarah you know with the electroshock therapy and we see Jared Leto's arm and then it crescendos with the ass to ass scene and I just think in 2020 that's not quite as shocking uh, as it probably might have or Darren Aronofsky might have thought it would have been to audiences back in 2000. I mean, I feel like if this movie got remade, it would almost get laughed at in the way that uh, the you know the, the the last thirty minutes of Midsummer got laughed at in the theater that I was at. It's like almost Ari Aster territory in a way. Um, so I don't know. They'd have to think of something more more perverse and shocking and taboo to show. I know. I feel like that could have been a scene like in the middle of the office in The Wolf of Wall Street or something like. Them, yeah, them getting... exactly. It, it belonged in The Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Well, isn't that scene what gave it the NC-17 rating? Yeah, they had to cut that, uh, cut part of that. Well, I, yeah, and I also think Jennifer Connelly's, you know, pubes, like, standing in front of the mirror, that censors probably oh, didn't like that either. Probably not. Uh, okay, any other uh, conspiracy theories besides the ones that we've already mentioned? Nope. I had a couple uh, of questions. One was, um, how did they figure out the system of the lock and key with the money? Like... That's at Tyrone's house, right? So it, does that mean that Tyrone is just more trustworthy, that they keep it at his house? How does he not just go in and take the money? Like, how did that system work? How did they devise that system? Wouldn't Harry want to keep the money at his house? Or wouldn't he, like, not trust Tyrone? Well, I think that's where they always got high. I, I, don't, I, I think they both probably had access to it. 
They were always at but if Her- it was at- Tyrone's place, right? Yeah, but if it was at Tyrone's place, how could Harry get access to it? I they were best friends. They probably had a key or something. I don't know. I, I, I was assumed that that was just like a communal area. I don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was a stupid question. I had another stupid question, which is that why does Harry need to steal uh, his mom's TV? Because why wouldn't she just give him the money? I mean, she's apparently not aware of his drug addiction. Clearly later, you know, when, when he's accosting her for her drug addiction. And so, like, why... And uh, clearly she dotes on him. So I feel like it's a situation where he could just ask for money. Or maybe it's a Phyllis and Miles situation where she just keeps the money in an Ajax jar under the sink. And maybe he can find it there. Well, I, I was wondering that too. Because he's like, Ma, wh- why do you got to do this? Why do you got to make me feel like an asshole or, or whatever? I'm like, well... Because you keep doing the same thing, like I mean, maybe, maybe there's some sort of system they have with uh with uh Salamanca or whatever, where I don't know, maybe there's some sort of deal that they get from it. I I have no idea because that that does not yeah it doesn't make any logical sense because he's like yeah you'll get it back in a couple hours you know that it's like it's not like he's gonna go buy it back, or. It, and it's not like it, it would make sense if she didn't want to give him money because she knew he was gonna just spend it on drugs, but she's oblivious to his drug addiction. Yeah, yeah, I that that I there's something deeper there. Maybe that that's explained in the book or something. But I, I <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I've never understood that. I want to know why Sarah hasn't already lost enough weight simply by walking across town to go get her TV back every day. It's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, she's getting her exercise in, obviously. I had a conspiracy theory that is Sarah Goldfarb the Joker because of the scene where she puts on lipstick and is laughing like the Joker. That's what I was picturing yeah, when, when Terry said Catherine O'Hara. I was like, that'd be horrifying if it was Catherine O'Hara. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it definitely had a very, you know, opening scene of Joaquin Phoenix and the Joker vibe to it. Yeah. How how about uh how about Marion um takes the money that she gets at the end and uh makes a new life for herself and ends up um getting into a, a prestigious uh New England college and uh and meeting a certain John Nash and uh turns out she's a genius and uh Mary's a genius and uh you know those two movies just kind of work together made one year apart. Mary, she also go. builds a time machine and goes back in time 50 years so she can meet John Nash. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> I like where your head's at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I well, still like my conspiracy theory that uh, that Big Tim used the Glengarry leads. That's how he got all his money. Yeah. yeah he, uh, he won a Cadillac. And and the and the mailman that that's the only job he could get after being fired from Inatech. No, they went to Intertro, remember? <laughs> oh yeah, well yeah. I but let's say let's say like they didn't survive Y two K or something, so he ended up he, he ended up just delivering the mail in Coney Island. And uh yeah. Yeah. In Coney Island. He, he had to move he had to move home from Silicon Valley to Coney Island. And, uh, <laughs> yep, yep, all right, last couple categories, uh, LVP, MVP, Todd, 
Who is your LVP of this movie? My LVP is the MPAA, because they caused the movie to lose like millions of dollars by not letting it get released just because they didn't like the ass to ass scene. I I mean, there's too much importance in the movie, and they really screwed this one up. I mean, it should have been a big hit at the time. It should have gotten nominated for more Oscars, but the MPAA is a bunch of little bitches. They're the LVP. Uh, my LVP is the same as my uh, as my worst performances. It's all the doctors. All of the doctors are the LVP. Uh, if any doctor would actually have done their job in this movie, these stories are different. If if Marion Shrink does his job, story is different. If Doctor Pill does his job, story is different. If freaking what's his name? That uh, didn't that just called the cops, had done his job. There we go, Dylan Baker. Simply, simply uh, billed as the Southern Doctor. If he had done his job, the story ends differently. So, every doctor, do your job, um, and things work out better. Okay. Zach, how about you? Uh, I think I'm, my LVP um, is probably going to have to be Tappy Timmons because, you know, his show doesn't seem like it's that big, but uh, obviously he has a legion of fans and there are a lot of people there. So why isn't he making more money? Why does he have to relegate himself to late night TV? And um, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to mention Tappy Timmons. I don't think this movie has an LVP. I think it's great. Everyone, everyone's a winner. We got a winner, so no LVP in the spirit of Tappy Timmons. Except the MPAA or the Academy at the Oscars. Yeah, that's they true. could be LVP too. How does how does Sarah have trouble like going on a diet and like giving up Danishes when all she does is watch Tappy Timmons tell her that she shouldn't eat sugar? Cause he's on the television. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Todd, who's your MVP? My MVP is Clint Mansell, who uh, is the composer, because I feel like that music is now just synonymous with like the downfall of any situation, and it's that haunting music that makes the experience what it is, and uh, as memorable and rewatchable, even though what you're watching is pretty reprehensible. I, I, th- I think Clint Mansell had, like, a- at that moment, he had to be like the top composer of, of anyone who was making this kind of movie. Nice, nice. Um, my uh, my MVP is going to be um, Ellen Burstyn. Um, she's one that that uh, I don't know if this movie like gets made without someone like that in in this. I mean, she she hadn't been doing much for a while, but she was a name. She's a legendary actress and. A, mo- a small time movie like this with a bunch of of young up and comers, it's like eh. But we got Ellen Burstyn in the lead. I mean, there's a reason she got the Oscar nomination. It's she's the name. It was the it was the comeback story. And if she's not if she's not in this, I don't know if this movie ends up happening the way it does. Um, and and she is she's the heart of the movie the whole time as well. So I'm I'm going Ellen Burstyn is the MVP. Like it. 
Zach. Uh, I have co-MVPs for this movie, and that is Darren Aronofsky and the cinematographer Matthew Labatique, um, who also has made a name for himself um, because he's done all of Aronofsky's movies, and uh, he also did A Star is Born and a few other movies. And I give them the MVPs because, like, I think it's really ballsy to be, like, you know, some unknown 30-year-old from Brooklyn to come into a movie with, like, you know, Ellen Burstyn and a pretty loaded cast. Not a lot of money, I'll give him that. But then to, like, if you watch the making of feature of this movie, like, they're doing crazy shit. Like, the scene in the apartment where uh, Ellen Burstyn's, like, cleaning, they have, like, that camera that's moving, you know, and it's moving super slowly, and they just have her cleaning for literally two hours so that later they, th- they can go back and uh, and, and fat- make it fast forward. Like, they've got all this crazy shit that's going on, and I think that's really ballsy to just, like, come into a movie with these crazy visual ideas, like the splits screen and to have people buy into it and not think oh you're not just some pretentious douchebag from film school who's going to be you know the next Tarantino trying to do something totally different unique like I mean and and, you know he's coming out at the same time as like Paul Thomas Anderson you know so he's like got to make a name for himself and he did it with this movie I mean this aesthetic is totally different and the way it's filmed and the way it's shot is very daring and experimental but it's obviously inspired you know, a ton of filmmakers since uh, the making of this movie. And I feel like this movie is so well seen, so um, widely seen and so well regarded that it's like become a cliche in film school to say that you're a fan of it. And and that's all because of Darren Aronofsky and Matthew Labatee. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned it. I wanted to mention it. Too. I love the split screen scenes. Those are so cool because it almost feels like you're watching two different movies at that moment. You're watching the exact same scene. It was almost like Aronofsky couldn't decide whose point of view he wanted to film the scene from, so he just filmed it from both. It's so cool. And just something so original and different that you don't... Even now, you don't see stuff like that. So. Agreed. Cool. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. Quote of the day time. Uh, Zach, you're going first. Give us your quote of the day. All right, my quote of the day comes from the 2008 Independent Spirit Awards with uh, Mickey Rourke yes. winning Best Actor. And uh, he, he talks quite a bit about Darren Aronofsky, you know, comes around once every 25 years the same way that Coppola, Parker, and all the rest of them did. And, and uh, apparently Darren whispered to him in the ear, Mickey, uh, it, it's 30. But this was um, 30 years. Uh, this was Mickey's quote. The only thing I want to say to any actor or actress who gets an opportunity to work with Darren is that you better be in shape because he will break you down. He's one tough son of a bitch and he don't like me saying that because uh, he says, Mickey, you will scare all the actors away from me. Darren, you know what? If they don't have the balls to bring it, then f*** them, you know? It's class. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Uh, my quote is going to come from... Uh, the uh, one of the movies I watched this week, and that was uh, "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" with uh, Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra. Um, so it classic MGM musical, and I wanted to quote one of the songs because I mean they just don't they just don't write them the way they used to. So this is a song. Um, so Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra they do their vaudeville route, um, tour, and they come back, uh, and they they're late to spring training because they had to finish their tour. They come back and everyone's all asking them how their off-season went. And they tell them about all the places they've been and all the girls they've been with. And this is what the song is. And the song is called Yes Indeedy. And and so here's, I'm, I'm going to give you one verse. And I'm going to give you the verse that just kept, made me go, oh, yeah, they don't write, write them like that anymore. Anyways, one verse, an example. I kissed a gal way out in Boise. That's Idaho where potatoes grow. I went away and her sobs were noisy. 
I said I'll see you later, and I hopped the nearest freighter, left her holding a potato down in Idaho. So that's kind of the, you know, you can hear it. It's like, oh, okay, okay. And then there's the next verse. I kissed a gal in old Poughkeepsie. That's where the College of Vassar's found. Uh, she couldn't study. Love made her tipsy. But she just but she just couldn't pass her, so she just turned on the gasser, so the sweetest gal in Vassar's in the cold, cold ground. To which I went, what? <laughs> this is not a song and dance number anymore. <laughs> Lovely. I bet Sarah yes. Goldfarb is a fan of that movie. <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> All right, Todd. All right, mine comes from Requiem for a Dream, mainly because it reminded me of a scene in Kill Bill Volume 2 where Zack's favorite character of all time is like, I need you like I need an asshole right here. But uh, th- uh, it's from Mr. Rabinowitz. He says, your mother needs you like a moose needs a hat rack. And, like, I, I don't know, like, those kind of analogies are just so weird. Like, I wonder if, like, writers just have, like, a book of them that they're like, oh, throw this random line in the here because like, I hear those things all the time. And that one was just like, what? That makes no sense. And then I thought about it. I was like, no, actually, that's really deep. <laughs> that was a great line. That almost was part of the trivia, by the way, was <laughs> something about that line. <laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> yeah. Sarah needs Harry like a moose needs what? That was going to be the question. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back uh, in probably a week with another episode, uh, looking at uh, another movie and, uh, and looking at some other things, looking back at the last decade and, uh, and many other, a lot of other, you know, stuff. We'll, we'll see what we come up with for episode seven. Many other week. stuff. <laughs> Many other, you know, stuff. You can order pizza like nobody's business. So uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Uh, until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.